0: Hello, everybody. It is a special edition of the Week in EdTech. I'm Ben Cornell with my co-host, Alex Sarlin. We have special guest Matt Tower from EdTech Thoughts in today. Breaking news, just an hour ago, uh, we had news hit around Silicon Valley Bank, their takeover by the FDIC. Um, we just heard from Janet Yellen that on Monday, all deposits, all accounts will be paid back in full. That doesn't go for the stockholders or people who've who've uh, loaned money, but uh, a sigh of relief across Silicon Valley, across the country, across EdTech. Uh, we're going to break it down for you. And then we're also going to ask the question, so what? So thanks for joining us here, Matt. Maybe you could just kick us off a little bit with what happened. Like catch us up from like Thursday, Friday to today.
1: Sure. And, uh, you know I'm going to be looking for facial cues if I if I screw anything up please just top right in <laughs> so and I I've been I've been working on this to try and figure out how to how to frame it succinctly in a nutshell Silicon Valley Bank one of the kind of preeminent banks to um venture backed startups um in they started on the West Coast literally in Silicon Valley they're a regional bank so they're they're you know, like uh, a local bank near to wherever you dear listener live. Um, but they they made this kind of particular focus on tech. Um, and for a long time, that worked rather well for them. Um, you know, tech companies get a bunch of funding in in the form of cash from venture capitalists, and they deposit it with Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank then is able to loan out or um, in, in this case, uh, they were not able to loan out, and I'll get to that in a second, um, that money to make a return on those dollars. And um, like I said, for they were incorporated in like 1983, I think. And for 40 years, they kind of hummed along like a regional bank. And, you know, they had other types of clients too. They had coffee shops and, you know, hairdressers and all that. Um, but again, they, they had this concentration on tech, and, and that is what kind of undid them in the end. Um, the reason that it's uh, tricky to concentrate on tech is um, tech companies don't have the same type of cash flows as a normal business. So if you are a coffee shop, you have a fairly predictable business in the grand scheme of things, The kind of law of large data or whatever. Where you are going to have certain capital needs and certain capital uh, inflows, and um, what banks often do is they lend against that. So if you need, you know, five hundred thousand dollars to put in, you know, a new to put in a new branch of your coffee shop, uh, the bank will lend you that money, um, and and that's kind of what keeps the banking system humming along. With tech startups, they have this weird phenomenon in the business world um, where they get large sums of money and then they don't really need loans, um, at least for the first five, 10, 15 years of their existence because they are are kind of using that cash to invest in research and development. And sometimes that works. You get the Facebooks of the world that grow to be, you know, multi-billion and even trillion dollar companies. Sometimes it doesn't, but um, because they don't need loans the same way a traditional business does, Silicon Valley Bank has to find other ways to uh, earn what's called a spread on the, their deposits. Um, so what Silicon Valley Bank did is they invested in T-bills, treasury uh, securities from the US government, which are you know, some of the safest things available uh, in the entire world. And uh, the issue here was not that the T-bills were bad, it was that they were they were bought at a very low interest rate. So if we go back to 2020 and 2021, which were historically high times for fundraising, and again, that's bringing a lot of money into Silicon Valley Bank, they're really low interest rate times. So when Silicon Valley Bank was taking those large inflows, then buying government securities at a very low interest rate, they were getting very low spread. Um, what happened this year or over the past kind of nine months is uh, the, the Fed has been raising the interest rate um, across our economy and the, the interest rate at which you could buy um, government securities. So now you have Silicon Valley Bank with a bunch of kind of low interest securities um, in a rapidly increasing, increasing interest rate environment. Um, And that kind of, um, this is where I'm trying to find the right words for it. That kind of, uh, I'm going to call it like an inflection point, um, ultimately caused folks, business leaders to lose faith in um, the bank's ability to pay their deposits if um, if somebody wanted their money back. So I, as business leader, I'm looking at this and saying, well, you know, uh, I have a million dollars with Silicon Valley Bank. They have a bunch of low interest securities um, that, you know, have a long maturation date. I might wanna take my money out um, in case somebody else wants to park their money elsewhere. One person does this it's not so bad a thing three people do this you know the three of us here on this call do that. it's like well that's not great a hundred thousand companies which is the number of business clients that silicon valley bank has it starts to become a real problem um and which is also known
0: as a bank run yes and you know it was fueled on twitter and you know vcs reaching out to their portfolio companies actively encouraging them to to switch out so i You know one thing about the the dynamics here that i think were particularly shocking though is how fast it went you know wednesday it you know silicon valley bank is trading at i don't know uh, you know the equity is like 16 billion dollars they had you know um something like 165 billion in accounts and by friday they're worth nothing and they're in receivership with the federal government it's really that liquidity crunch that was the challenge because the had people been willing to wait till the treasury bonds matured, they would have had the money, but it was everyone trying to get their money out all at once, so there's a lot of finger pointing here um you know matt who do you who do you ascribe the blame to or or what's even the lessons learned,
1: yeah. And there, there's one interesting nuance that um, I think is relatively unexplored uh, yet, but I thought was compelling just thinking about it from a like user point of view, which is um, you know, in the olden days, you had to literally go to your bank to get your deposits. Um, and you know, if the bank across the street offered you a slightly higher interest rate, there is still a fair amount of friction to um, transfer your funds to them. You know, it was go to your old bank, tell them you wanted all your money, have them look at you sadly, and then walk across the street, go to a new bank and say, hey, I'd like to open an account. They have to do the background check, you know, yada, yada, yada. You know, it could take days or even weeks to get that new, better interest rate. And with SVB, or frankly, in today's environment, it's like we can open bank accounts in the you know, blink of an eye, you know, I can log into my Chase credit card portal and say, hey, I'd like a checking account. And like, they can facilitate that remarkably quickly. And, and so I think, you know, going back to that interest rate spread that we talked about, um, you know, if I'm looking at my SVB account and saying, well, you know, I'm only earning 0.05% with SVB, maybe, maybe I want to go to Chase or, you know, some other regional bank and say, they're offering me 1%. And I think the fact that you can do that today, in you know minutes, really allows for that that kind of herd mentality that you just talked about, Ben. And and I think that's important. You know, I, obviously we're still learning about all this, how much of a factor that is. But but I think like you know again, once the the kind of vortex starts spinning, it's really hard to get it to stop.
2: Um, uh, yeah. I think there are some pieces of that uh, that herd mentality that we should unpack here because for people outside of Silicon Valley, uh, you know, Ben, you're right in the middle of it. I was there, but I'm not there anymore. I think people maybe don't understand how closely knit all of these people are. There's a lot of venture capital firms. Many of them are literally on the same street as each other. They are next door. They all know each other. They have outsized effects because they each have Dozens and dozens and dozens of portfolio companies, depending on the size of the of the firm, and they're all in contact with each other. So, you know, people are pointing one of the fingers that's been pointed a lot in what I've been reading is Peter Thiel, uh, you know, head of Founder Fund, a notoriously outspoken, you know, political VC who really early in this in this uh, this run told all his companies get get out of the Silicon Valley Bank i i think you know you're, the way you're describing it matt it's totally accurate I, I, as far as i know but it sounds very casual you're like well they have a higher interest rate over here this is not casual at all i mean this thing no. lost billions and billions in hours it was like it, it, and and it was like an, un, i mean and you're, you're right the speed at which the money could move is definitely a contributing factor but i really think this is a silicon valley specific case it's like it's a one industry bank for the most part, there are the coffee shops and hairdressers you mentioned, but almost all the money there is that also it's, it's a one industry bank where people are putting at least a million dollars. I think the low on the business account is a million dollars. And then the FDIC only insures a quarter million dollars. So, and nobody seemed to care about that because I think in Silicon Valley world, a quarter million dollars is, you know, is chump change. It's just not that much money at all. And people never think they're going to have to hit that federal backstop, but the combination of the fast-moving sort of herd mentality of silicon valley and the you know wall of the fed i mean of of the federal government and the fdic really really bizarre set of circumstances one other quick thing to add there in in a lot of the coverage i've been reading is that part of the other part of the reason silicon valley bank was in so much trouble is that they got a huge influx of money over the last couple of years because of the increase like once in a lifetime increase in VC funds and then this year it's gone through the floor, there's very little. So for a bank that is entirely leveraged on on, uh, on on venture capital, it they had a ton of money come in, nobody to give it to, like you said, man, nobody to lend it to, because the, everybody they work with already gets the venture, they don't need loans. So they put it in something safe just to have it at least hopefully make more money than the, than the, the interest they have to pay. And then, uh, you know, a, a, and then, venture falls through the floor, no more money is coming into the bank. And, um, or, you know, relative to where it was and and they hit this liquidity capital crunch. And I mean, I've just never seen anything like this. And I, I don't know, we're in a really weird moment right now because none of us have ever seen anything like this. The federal government as of, you know, just now is saying, don't panic. Don't let this be a contagious thing. Don't pull your money out of every regional bank. But, uh, and we'll see if, you know, we'll see if it works to sort of limit other bank runs. We already saw a second regional bank uh, close as of today.
1: When,
0: I one just thing, want to jump in here too, because um, I, I don't think that people get the full picture accurate when they say this is a Silicon Valley bank thing, because they tend to focus on the big dollar checks and the big VCs, but really how Silicon Valley Bank made its name, is you could open a business account and you could borrow money without a personal guarantee. And for a lot of startup founders, this was actually a game-changing way to bank. Most of these companies were unbankable with a traditional bank. And so actually there's quite a number of very, very small accounts all of which are insured and so on. But a number of those small accounts eventually become big accounts because mm-hmm. you know, you're know, you basically saying, I need to set up a bank account, I'm going to fundraise. And the irony is like, Wells Fargo won't set up your account until you have the check. And the people won't write the check until you have the bank account. Okay, so there's a little bit of that dynamic there. Mm. And then the second kind of piece, and, I don't know if this is a, something to blame people on, or it's a cause, but a factor here is because they were taking risk on people without, you know, the collateral, they often would require that they do all of their banking with the bank. And that way they would have the full picture. So many people had covenants in how they, you know, set up a loan or set up a line of credit that meant that they also had to use it for their main deposits. And, and then on top of that, sometimes you might have like, let's say you raise around and you have 4 million in the bank, some of that money you're using Silicon Valley bank to put in, you know, money market accounts where you might earn some interest. So it's not just all sitting in a checking account. And I think that there's like a view that, oh, you know, it's these huge pots of money. Why wouldn't they have diversified it? It's actually very much because they were serving this underserved or unserved group of startup founders in the early days that they'd really become a behemoth um, and then I just also say on the personal front you know living here everyone is like one degree removed from somebody who's impacted and you know the stories that are resonated with me over the weekend were founders who you know on Thursday, Frantically, we're trying to get a wire out. Couldn't get it out. Friday, have to have an all hands meeting and say, "I don't know if you're going to get paid," and and you know. Meanwhile, the they're trying to get loans and backstop, you know, backstop funds. And then tonight, they get the message: "Okay, your deposits will be valued and whole." So it's a roller coaster ride. Every founder signs up for the roller coaster. We just didn't know we were signing up for this roller coaster, and in particular, by the way, last point, um, you know, as an edtech podcast, really, there's some actually pretty profound impact for edtech in particular. Many of our clients are school districts, are um, universities that are federally funded. There's a way in which our like our financial solvency and potential liquidity is is actually really, really important for us to secure these contracts. And so we were looking at people being in breach of their contracts because they would have had to report or disclose their like financial situation. So I, I do think that it's an interesting set of conundrums EdTech founders were facing. Fortunately, much, much of that has been averted.
1: I'd love to just build on that um, because I think a lot of people spent this entire weekend kind of contingency planning. And, you know, I think there was some kind of Twitter chatter about like, you know, well, the whole reason for the 250K um, backstop is once you have that much money, um, you know, you're supposed to be kind of financially sophisticated enough that you would avoid a problem like this. And I like sort of understand that, but, and and then you get the people who are like, well, why would you just have a million dollars sitting in a bank account? And, you know, I think what's important to think about here is if you are running payroll for a 15 person company, you have more than 250K sitting in a checking account. Like you cannot yeah. run payroll for a 15 person company without mm-hmm. having more than that amount of money in a bank account. You, you literally cannot. So I I think there's this like kind of dissonance where it's like, well, you know, this is a problem for the rich. And it's like, well, actually, this was payroll. Like a lot of companies did not pay payroll on Friday because of what happened here. And a lot of companies were not going to be able to pay payroll next week. You know, even if the depositors were made whole at some point in the future, like at some point in the future was not a acceptable or was not a fair outcome because it's like you're going to miss payroll. Um, and you yeah. were going to miss, you know, your, you know, ability to pay bills and that type of thing. And exactly to your point, Ben, you know, you were going to have to report effectively insolvency to your uh, customers. And so I think that's the ripple effect that um, the FDIC and other folks kind of involved here are trying to protect against is um, it has nothing to do with the actual like shareholders of SV. Um, they've, you know, they're done and dusted. Nobody's nobody's getting any more money from them as equity holders. But um, I think like the ripple effect of, you know, at least 100,000 companies not being able to hit payroll and not being able to hit pay their bills next week. Uh, there's there's just a crazy butterfly effect um, mm-hmm. from that.
2: Yeah. And, and a lot of political fallout. I mean, I don't know if you notice some of the, the, you know, imagine you're the Biden administration and, you know, that if the federal government is seen on any level to be bailing out Silicon Valley, yes, you could make that case that you just made that it's about payroll. But even payroll is this is payroll to Silicon mm-hmm. Valley heirs and designers. Most of the country doesn't have a lot of sympathy for that. And, I, I, you know, Matt Gates came out immediately saying, oh, let's see if let's see what happens. If they, if they try to bail them out, we're going to have a field day because and they would have. And And, and I I mean, I'll tell you,
0: Alex, even even given the situation, they're going to claim that it's a bailout. Sure. Uh, And actually, this is so this is where I'd love to head. Like, so now that we have the feds stepping in and backstopping the deposits, they're doing an auction. The idea is that eventually someone someone or a a set of institutions will buy off the SVB assets. You know what's the takeaway? What what do what do things look like going forward? And you know what is the what are you sitting with as you think about the next few weeks, months, and years, based on the what what happened here?
2: Matt, I'd love to hear your answer to that first. I gotta I gotta get my my head around <laughs> sure crazy moment.
1: I so there's there's probably a couple different directions you could go with it. Um, I saw one funny article today that's like. Uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, I'm not saying that right, but the Greek freak, the basketball player, um, is so smart because he has 250K stored in 50 different bank accounts. And it's like, that's, that's one solution. That's one direction we could go. When you're from
0: Greece, that's probably what you do. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Uh, (laughs) and, and, you know, that he, he, that is kind of a product of the financial system that he grew up in. And I think that really speaks to. Like an existential question of like you know one of the reasons that the us has gotten to the place in the world that it's gotten is because of the rule of law and the institutions that we have that help facilitate you know all the amazing kind of um tech and lifestyle stuff that we have um not to get all kind of philosophical on y'all but <laughs> um you know i think it's really important to think about and um you know it gets at the future of like should we as a country have regional banks or should we just, you know, put it all into the, the too big to fail banks. And so I think like, that's a bigger question than I am equipped to solve to answer, but I think there's going to be some real soul searching, um, among the U S financial institutions.
2: And, And I think that's exactly why, you know, one of the main reasons why Janet Yellen and the federal government is stepping in so fast and saying, you know, whether you call it a bailout or not, Let's try not to, but we're we're gonna make sure that these uh that that the deposits are are insured or you know, that they're that they're uh they're covered. I think it's because they're trying to avoid financial contagion among the entire regional bank system. Because Silicon Valley Bank, it was the sixteenth biggest bank in the US as as we've all seen. And part of the reason for that is yeah, it's a regional bank. It's a regional bank in an incredible you know, dead center of one of the fastest growing industries in the world for the last 20 years. So like, of course it's, you know, it does great, but there are regional banks all over the country. And if they were all to, you know, people were to say, oh, wait, I didn't realize that I, you know, that this was so risky that a bank can fail in a day and I, you know, I get back home from work and my bank might've failed. I better pull my money and put it in bank of America or whatever the big banks you're mentioning that. I think that, you know, I don't think anybody except Bank of America and, and Citi and those folks, you know, would want that future. Um, I think, you know, one aspect of this that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about, but I'm really curious, but, you know, the, 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 there was this letter come out from, a, it's now been signed by almost 600 different venture capital firms, basically trying to put, to, you know, it's, it's a statement of support for Silicon Valley Bank. It's signed by, you know, all the big, big names in Silicon Valley, the, the Kleiner Perkins, the Sequoias. Uh, as well as some of the edtech specific ones like, like owl and uh and gsv um but realistically you know silicon valley bank is gone i mean it, it, they can support it but it's gone as of yet you know this week that's a lot of money that if it does go back into all of yeah. these these nbcs needs to go somewhere and i don't think they're going to do the, the the greek you know that that greek model of putting a quarter million dollars in many banks but they're going to have to put it somewhere and this is a lot of money I wonder what's gonna happen with that. I mean, are they going- Alex,
0: Alex, on that front, I I do think that there might be some financial mechanisms that people, you know, turn to, which are these insured sweeps, the idea being that you use, you know, your core bank as the quarterback of your money, and then it sweeps it out and Mm. spreads it out to other banks. Mm. You know, my, a lot of what you're hitting on, like the the three main takeaways I had, one was, the rate of change in our society is just very, very evident in everything going on with AI, with politics. And now with banking, you really have to be on top of your things when a bank can go from you know, huge market cap to worth nothing in 24 to 48 hours. And I think that that is a kind of risk of modern times, Matt, you mentioned kind of the digital facility in which we're able to move money around and create accounts and all that. It's so, so good for so many reasons, but we are in a high velocity moment in history. The second takeaway I had when I was watching all of this is man, wouldn't the crypto people be crowing if FTX had not just melted down, there was another like crypto lender. And now the stable coin uh, is like being brought down because it was with uh with USDC with with the bank. Yeah. So, you know, this was supposedly like crypto was supposed to be the hedge against these large consolidated bank failures. And in some ways, I feel like this is the nail in the coffin because with FTX, it totally blew up and no one was made whole and they're still going through the bankruptcy process of, you know, distributing out whatever was left over. Whereas this one, Yes, it failed within 48 hours, and within 72 hours, depositors have been uh, made whole. And then I think the third thing is we have to acknowledge that there's other single points of failure for EdTech. And, you know, I was thinking about Amazon Web Services.
1: Mm -hmm. Imagine if
0: AWS just went down and Mm -hmm. totally crashed. There's no contingency plan for 50% of EdTech companies. And so there is a way, whether that's a cyber attack, whether that's insolvency on their part, there's ways in which we've kind of um, aggregated on different platforms, whether that's a financial platform or a tech platform. And I do think that it's important that we step back writ large as an end tech ecosystem and say, hey, how are we hedging our bets? And of course, like Google Cloud has been selling on the, hey, you should be multi-cloud hosted for a long long time i hope i hope people at least take the moment to to question maybe that is a good idea maybe we're at a certain scale where you know multi hosting is a good idea so there's a number of other companies that have become like so core to the infrastructure of the innovation economy and of edtech you know it's a it's a good chance for founders to reevaluate and hopefully you know by monday as they say you know, we wouldn't have missed a beat and and payroll's coming through. So we learned the lesson, maybe the easier way.
2: The, the one other point of failure that I heard talked about this week, I thought was very interesting was companies like uh, Stripe was payment providers, because some of those are, totally. you know, started as startups. And, you know, every B2C ed tech company or a whole bunch of them would be in a lot of trouble if Stripe, you know, went down. Uh, it is a really, I love your point about the velocity. And I'd love to hear you talk about this too, Matt, because I know you follow this your, the speed of it so closely. I, I mean, one thing that this makes me think of, and it reminds me a little of, of 2008, which is you know, not what you're supposed to say when something is, is risky like this, but is in 2008, there was a feeling of, okay, there's all, these finance guys probably know what they're doing, don't they? These guys on Wall Street, they probably know what they're doing. They're making a whole lot of money. And then, you know, the, the the wheels come off and you see the heads of all of these companies being like, we don't even know what these things are. We don't know what a subprime mortgage like hardly is. We don't know what a, you know, these derivative things are like. And, and, and I think there was this like feeling. I mean, you did, Occupy Wall Street came right out of this of like, oh, wait, these people don't even know what they're doing. And I think there's a moment I look at this list of 600 VCs who are all at the same bank. I'm like. I'm not sure these people know what they're doing. Like, like, they, 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 I mean, it's a it's a pretty freaky moment to see that, like, an a industry like technology, like, all fifty percent of startups in the U.S. banked with SVB is what I've read. That's crazy. Talk about a single point of failure. Like, it's um, it's it's a thing. And 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 I mean, I, I really I, I wonder coming out of this if there might be a little bit of a sort of. I don't know, revolutionary zeal like the Occupy movement where people say, why do we think these these guys on Sand Hill Road are the only people who understand the world and tech? Like maybe they are kind of just, you know, following each other around in circles and maybe it should be Bangkok that, that, you know, maybe it should be uh, Columbus, Ohio. Maybe it should be Texas. Like, I think there might be a this might be like a, a nail in the coffin of the Silicon Valley myth which has been, you know,
1: <laughs> ascendant for a long time. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I think there's kind of two things that I spend a lot of time thinking about and the first sort of along the same lines of what you're saying Alex is I'm going to call it the the cockroach theory of of startup building. <laughs> um and it's like, you know, there's the stat like 90% of all startups fail and the reality is actually probably even higher and you know <clears throat> actually to make this even funnier, one of the, um, if you listen to the, how I built this with Guy Raz is he always, he always, he has two questions that every interview has. One is, um, were you a good student in high school? And the other is, you know, how much do you attribute your success to luck versus skill? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it's like, well, reflecting on the startups, the startup class of like 2010 to 2020, it's like, well, you faced neither a, a giant bank run nor a global pandemic. Like you were pretty right. darn lucky. Like, right. um, so there, there definitely was some skill, but the fact that you didn't have to na- navigate these like global calamities um, made it, you know, one of the best times probably ever to, to build a startup. And so I think there's this element of like, just figure out how to survive and startup land and, the, the flip side of that coin is like, well, if I'm a founder, particularly if I'm an ed tech founder, how much of my time should I be spending thinking about my like bank sweeps? Like <laughs> Ben's right. Like there will be a company that will just like, you'll pay $5 a month and they'll do, they'll spread yeah. your money across, you know, a hundred different bank accounts. Um, but like, you know, I think what what the reality is, is in why all, there's such concentration here. It's like, well you know, these guys are pretty nice to us and it's really not worth our time to be thinking about bank risk because like the probability of success is so low already. If I spend any ounce of my energy thinking about where my money's parked, it means I'm not focused on my problem. And, you know, whether that's good or not, we can debate, but I I think that's the theory.
0: And do you think that Um, theory is reinforced now that their deposits are safe?
1: I have no idea that I mean, that is, you know, the question is like, by this, you know, effective bailout, whatever you want to call it, like, did we learn our lesson or not? Um, (laughs) You know, and the answer is, I don't know, like, if the if the answer is like, I pay a startup five bucks a month to push my money into 100 different bank accounts, like, it seems a little silly, but like, if it means I don't have to worry about it, like, I would pay that money. Um, yeah that's
0: that's that's probably the tax that we end up paying is, yeah. is something like that but yeah i i thought you were where you're going with the cockroach one is that edtech startups never die there is a degree to <laughs> which i will also say we are a resilient bunch in edtech and i've seen founders go you know with revenue plummeting and you know sales struggling and velocity and they still squeeze two, three, four years out of it. So there is a way to where I was buoyed by stories of founders being like, well, I didn't see this one coming. But on Monday, I guess we'll figure it out. I mean, I was texting with two or three who had their personal money in bank accounts in Wellesley, Massachusetts, of all things, um, uh, where <laughs> like Silicon Valley Bank had acquired their personal banking bank and then meanwhile their money for their startup was at silicon valley bank and it was just such a little you know shit show Part i i know we'll like bleep that (laughs) in the edited version but it is just amazing how resilient our founders were and how many people were just coming out of the woodwork to help each other so in a Hmm. weird way it kind of was like backs against the wall and the ed tech crew just came through so yeah Well, we'll have more on this topic, um, you know, coming up through the week, I'm sure, but I, we should probably give our listeners a little bit of the, of the upside of where things are headed with AI and EDU, lots going on in that space. So with that transition, um, I don't know, do you want to set the table for us, Alex?
2: Sure. So, you know, th- this uh, this news came came at the end of last week, but some other really interesting things happening in the ed tech world. Every listener to this podcast will know that we've been talking AI and chat GPT a lot over the last few months because it is really a huge movement, especially for education. One of the things that came out this week was a leaked, apparently leaked uh, piece of information from a Microsoft that says that chat GPT-4 may come out as early as next week. That's the next version from 3.5, which is what's out now. And it may include videos, the ability to do AI videos, AI speech. It may be like some of the things we've been uh, speculating about may be a lot closer <laughs> than, than they appear. Um, that is a big news. I'm, there are some other AI stories, but I'd love to hear what both of you have to think about about just the idea. What if ChatGPT4 comes out next week and has videos and has speech and has all of these different multimedia assets? What might that mean for EdTech?
1: Matt, let me throw it to you. Sure. So, I mean, I think the biggest question for me is um, syntax and analysis and, and where what the delta is between you know three 3.5 and four in terms of being able to comprehend um a broader set of materials and and turn it into a more subject specific argument so what i've what i've argued with um a lot of the kind of current examples is very good at giving you the answer that appeals to the most people but is not particularly good at giving you the kind of subject matter expert answer. And I think like that is the leak that I'm kind of on the lookout for. Cause as soon as tools like these can start doing analysis, like that really changes the approach you take to using them today, it's, you know, you take the base level and it, it like speaks your language, but you still have to do a lot of the like tuning either um, literally like cutting and editing lines if you're writing or you know, figuratively if you are a software engineer kind of playing with the model. So I think that's what I'm on the lookout for. Um, I think modalities are like interesting, um, but that's that's the leap that I don't know if it'll be this one or the next one or, or when, but that's the one that I think is a real kind of game changer to, to what we do.
0: Yeah, my uh, I would echo plus one, everything Matt said, and especially his going around the need for tuning. For the AI to be practically usable, and I actually don't think that that's going to change. I, I think the, in some ways, the larger the model, the more generalized the content actually is. There's this weird way in which actually the people I talk to who do the tuning say it's actually quite shocking how little data you need to effectively tune a large language model, but more data in a large language model, it's like just 0.1% better or 0.2% better for most functions. I do think that the modality of video is going to be, is probably the highest risk and the highest opportunity. And, um, you know, I think this idea of a personalized avatar, that's going to teach you everything. That's where a lot of people's heads go, but imagine like Canva like features where you could make a, you know, um, an infographic video, you know, just at a push of a button. I think that kind of stuff is going to be available like in, next month, and that's pretty exciting, and um, and could be really really great for the world. I think there's just also a a growing group of people um, very concerned, and um, the folks who did the um, social dilemma, the movie about uh, Facebook and social media and the down downsides of that. They're doing a new round uh, called the AI Dilemma. I read about this on the information. And they're talking about the ability to create deep fakes and the real ability to, like, impersonate reality. And already stories are coming out of, you know, elderly folks getting a phone call from what appears to be their kids and saying, I need money. So there's just, um, I, I think what we're, the Pandora's box has been opened. And what we're really seeing is um, the more that you power up these large language models, the more diverse the use cases are. And that could be a good thing or bad thing. But Matt's point about tuning, I think that that's the part that people are still missing, is that the tuning is really the essential part for the value. And without it, you actually get the wrong answer a fair amount of time. or, Or it's something that a good web search could have told you anyway.
2: Yeah, amazing points I think all around the, the 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 circle here. I am trying to go as long as I can without sort of uh, having that that backlash uh you know reaction that sort of fearful reaction about AI even though I totally agree that it, you know disinformation and deep fakes and all of this bizarre stuff the ability to you know fake political scandals or say that a real political scandal was faked by AI. I mean, you you can do, there's so many things that can go wrong here, but I'm choosing actively to be a little bit, uh, you know, optimistic and excited about the AI. We love you, Alex. I know. I'm going to, it it might be trying in the next few months, but I'm going to try. It might be hard. Um, I think that from a product perspective, the fact that this might, be that we could maybe be able to do video that quickly that soon or speech that soon is sort of triples down to me on the prediction that ed tech is going to be increasingly ai uh you know run under the hood because of all the reasons you know we know about video video is the main communication medium for most young people in the world right now it the amount of online video watched by uh, kids is astounding i'm mean, like crazy it's like many many hours a day um and it enables even small players like you're saying ben you know if you're doing an infographic i mean think of khan academy khan academy was one of the biggest ed tech you know events in the last two decades and all it was was a guy making videos in his closet literally Like, you, anybody can do that now. (laughs) Anybody can do that now on almost any subject. And yes, the tuning, the accuracy is obviously important. But that's a pretty big sea change to go from like, this one person is unique in all of humanity and that he's going to sit and teach everybody through video in his room, you know, to, oh, now everybody, literally every single person can do that and companies have to just build incredible stacks on top of that to make the videos engaging and entertaining, perfectly accurate, pedagogically sound, relevant to whatever the kid is interested in. I mean, there's so much potential here. And I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to stay optimistic about it. I just think this accelerates if it does truly come out, whether it's next week or you know, three weeks from now, it doesn't really make a difference. But if there if 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 we're gonna go from text to video that fast it's just hard to even wrap your mind around how fast edtech might, might change. Um, I always use Newzella as an example here, because I think there's such an interesting one, you know, Newzella has spent many years creating leveled content, differentiated content for thousands and thousands and thousands of articles. If an AI can learn how to do that very quickly. You know that is a both a very a big threat to their business model and maybe a huge accelerant to their business model for all the reasons you just said, Matt. They are the ones who know how to tune. They have the data set. They have the subject matter experts at hand who know you know what it really means to be writing at different you know grade levels accuracy accurately. And so you know there. And I think a lot of companies are going to face this moment. Uh, even maybe YouTube for Education, where it's like, how. You know, we can either find a way for this technology to take us to a completely new level, or we could be eaten alive by it because by like three people in a, you know, in, in, a, in a high school classroom making a startup. Pretty nuts.
0: But, it, but if content is, is essentially free to generate and it, it essentially the quantity of content is unlimited now, um, really it's going to come down to curation, trust selection. And there's a way in which like the Khan brand is also a good analogy in this because YouTube has exploded since Khan first started. And yet people keep using Khan because it's trusted and it's curated. I think one thing I'm wondering about is how does this change the workforce? And, you know, what does workforce learning need to look like for people to thrive in a place where AI can be your assistant your extension and also where the rate of change is just so incredibly fast i don't know matt you follow that space quite a bit how you know ai embedded into workforce and upskilling it feels like all of us actually need like an ai upskilling course just to be alive in the next year
1: (laughs) yeah i mean just in like perpetuity like you have to spend an hour a week on your ai stuff um So it's a a really good question and bear with me a little bit, because I'm going to start with a story about uh, children's learning. Um, Ed Surge did an article this week that I really liked about um, the kind of third. I think they're like third graders that are learning with Amira and Soapbox Lab and Elo and some of the other kind of voice recognition tools that are are coming into particularly the the early elementary um, population. And as I'm reading the article, I was like, man, that must be weird that they're learning with like a, you know, a, a, an AI bot. And uh, so that was my, for like the first 15 minutes, I thought about it. And then as I thought about it a little deeper, I, I went back to, I learned how to type on an AlphaSmart. I don't know if you guys know what AlphaSmarts are, it's like a very specific, had a brief, moment uh in in the 90s where that was like a great 90s and 2000s where it was like how you learn to type and uh i remember bringing bringing mine home and my mom and dad being like what a weird device like <laughs> <laughs> um, like it, it without getting too deep into it but i they had a similar reaction and and you know i think if you look at my parents generation um a lot of them are like the hunt and pack typers i think most people have a visual for for that type of typer and you know they're extremely smart people and they succeeded in the in the workforce you know without being not not my parents specifically but like you know society existed that was fine but you know think about the like step change of being able to type in general at 100 words per minute that most kind of millennials and below have and now it's like okay well now you're whatever generation you know today's third graders are they're going to be trained to use voice and thought as their kind of modality for learning and for interacting with the world. That's wild. Um, So I think it's incumbent upon us, you know, old fogies here to learn how to adapt, right? And, you know, your reaction, Alex, I think makes a lot of sense. And I think is an easy one to kind of default into. But ultimately, the folks who are going to succeed in the workforce, and I'm finally getting around to your question, Ben, are the ones that will say like well i you know i can go hide or i can dip my head in and figure out how to use these things and it's it's super easy to say like of course i can go learn how to do it it's very different to like actually go and commit the time to to, to learning them uh they're not, they're simple tools but they're not they're they're hard to use well and that's what i'm looking for
0: yeah and i, I will say just in the in the news um we saw people addressing different elements of the spectrum that you just mentioned we've had Salwa from Fourth Brain on the show before and you know she really is actually focusing on the upskilling of you know tech talent to incorporate artificial intelligence but all the way down to that kind of elementary use case AIEDU a nonprofit just did a a call a national call for um, educational standards around AI. And they had 50 plus of some of the best known nonprofit profit and for-profit companies joining their pledge, which was the idea that it's not enough to have computer science as a requirement for high school, that we really need to be teaching the fundamental building blocks of AI all the way down in elementary. And that's not because everyone's going to be an AI programmer. In fact, like, none of us are going to be AI programmers, right? Because the AI will help us program. But it's the idea that you need to be metacognitive about what these tools are, how they work, how they, you know, what is the answer I'm giving, given from the AI and how might that answer have come to be so that I can evaluate whether it's um, accurate or not. And then um, Salesforce also um, released a digital skills now survey showing that only one in 10 global workers have in-demand uh, AI skills. I mean, the reality, the one in 10, I thought, man, that's pretty good, um, like 10%. But I think it. if you dig a little bit deeper, it's just the ability to use tools that leverage AI, not even to build AI itself. And um, we also saw in the news, Code.org, their CEO talking about the impact of AI on teaching computer science. There's almost a whole rethink of what needs to be learned. What, what should people be trained on? And I think, um, you know, the these headlines tell us that it's, you know, for, you know, my son who's six, he's going to be an AI native, just like, yep. you know, other kids, you know, the current generation, they're very mo- mobile phone, mobile natives. There's a way in which this is going to kind of feel like second nature. And so it does represent a big shift in both EdTech tools, as Alex, you and I, we talk about all the time, but also in pedagogy.
2: Uh, oh yeah, I just think it can't be understated. The, the, the code.org CEO uh, interview is really interesting because you know it took a long time between when coding was invented for people to start saying, hey, maybe we should be teaching this in K-12 school and training teachers on it. And even now, I mean, it's it's beginning to happen. Some states have it, but yeah, you know, and places like code.org exist, but it's still kind of struggling to be truly uh, to put on the same level as as reading, writing, and, uh, and arithmetic. And yet AI, the way we are considering it has been around for just, a, you know, I mean, AI was invented. 50 years ago, but you know, the way we're thinking about AI right now, it's be- much more recent and there's already this humongous movement to incorporate it into K-12. I mean, th- the kind of partners you're talking about, Ben, Google, Microsoft, Intel, Nvidia, at and uh, Hewlett Packard, GitHub, Teach for America, Boys and Girls Club. I mean, this is like, this is not small, small, you know, folks, G- GSB, th- Tech Techstars, Penn, GSE, like, Right off the bat, the entire education and tech ecosystem, tech even by itself, is saying, yeah, we really need to get ahead of this because there are a lot of risks, but it's also going to be the new literacy. I mean, quick story, really fast. When I was in high school, I had a public access TV show with a few friends of mine. and I can
0: imagine you're like Wayne or are you like Garth?
2: Pretty much, yes. <laughs> I spent a lot of time behind the camera, actually. But we, we, um, we always wanted to know what people thought of the show. And you know how we had to figure that out by putting our email address, uh, on paper and showing it on the video on the television. Because how else do you know in that era who's watching? You don't have likes. You don't have views. You don't have, you know, comments. You have nothing. And that was how, you know, that was how we used to do it. We did a live show so people could call in just so we could understand that there was anybody out there watching. Now, fast forward, your son, Ben, I mean, can you even imagine that? If he makes a video, it's immediately, you know, everybody in the world can see it. Anybody in his class can see it. He can get a hundred thousand views in, you know, three days. I mean, that is a different world. And this AI is is the next phase of that i mean the same way that a youtube and a TikTok are basically curatorial systems they're like yeah we're, we're putting out more content than anybody's ever imagined all the time and it's up to you guys to figure out what you want to watch i mean that will happen with ai people will be creating Videos of every kind to teach everything, and that doesn't only include traditional educators but workforce. I mean, as you were just saying, I mean, we're going to be in a world not that long from now where any of us at work, no matter what we do, will be able to, you know, hit the Siri button and be like, I need to know how to do this, and it will auto generate. Please, not
0: Siri, not Siri, anything but Siri.
2: Forget Siri, yeah. (laughs) Open OpenAI whatever the, the the name of the uh, our future AI uh, overlord robot will be but you know yeah. we'll we'll say hey teach me this thing and it'll just teach it to you it'll it'll teach it to you whatever however you want it'll make you an article it'll make you a video and then kids will grow up like that and they'll think what you know that's what education is you decide what you want to learn and you tell the system and it teaches it to you it's it's like a really nuts world I, 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 just, I to
0: add to, just to add to that, um, Alex, I was pitched on Friday by uh, a startup called Learn.xyz, and they will make you instantly a like two-hour course on any topic you want, right. you and go. you just input what I want to learn, and it creates a multi-module course with videos, with readings, with activities and assessments. And it takes about 60 seconds for it to generate an entire course.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's incredible that it already exists, but it's like, that's where we're going for sure. It's the fact that it's already here means it's, it, the sky's the limit. I mean, that's amazing. And, and, and I mean, I don't know. I just think we can't even begin to understate, to overstate how different it's gonna be what education is going to look like in the future when tools like that exist? I mean, it just changes entirely what it means to educate yourself, as YouTube and Wikipedia already have. But you know, it's just a whole different ballgame. It's 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 really nuts. Or TikTok already has. I mean, t- we we talked last week about that survey that came out that, that uh, where more than half of of uh, college students said they learned more from TikTok than from their classes. Did you guys see that thing? So, like, we're in a really new world here. Um, There are other AI news that came out, and we'll Matt, I want to bring you in on this, was that uh, Grammarly expanded. So, you know, we've seen a bunch of Turnitin and a bunch of different tools start bringing AI in. We saw Notion bring it in this week, Miro bring it in. Grammarly extends beyond proofreading with AI-powered writing. So that's really interesting because Grammarly has for years now been a tool that's been a go to, especially for um, students or adults with learning differences or who, you know, for any reason are not confident in their own writing ability. Grammarly sort of steps in and fixes everything, makes it really, really clean. Now they're going even further and saying, you know, hey, tell us what you want to be writing about. Tell us what you want to communicate and we'll uh, we'll write it for you. Um, So you're just seeing these things come every week. And all of them, I think, will have effects on education. Um, Matt, I want to ask you about something. I know we're running a little long here. You broke some news in EdTech Thoughts this week about Google acquiring Photomath last February, February of 2022. Can you please explain that news? Because I don't understand it.
1: Yeah so and you know i just want to like reinforce i think i'm spending a lot of time thinking about all the questions that you just brought up um so thank you um on photomath the 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 way this news came out was uh google uh is being sued in antitrust court in europe and as part of the like discovery process for that antitrust review um for, for folks who are less familiar with like antitrust rules and, and lawsuits like discovery is, uh, the lawyers for both sides get to ask for documents related to um, the issue at hand. And when it's as broad as like, does Google have competitive, uh, a competitive monopoly over the search market, they can ask for basically anything so a lot of these kind of interesting uh, things pop up. A, a Twitter account you might enjoy if if you're like into this type of stuff is um, Internal Tech Emails. I think it's at Internal Tech Emails. And it's literally just a bunch of like discovery docs that those are the ones that made it to trial. Um, so the, the cases do have to go to trial for discovery to go public. And that's often the reason you'll see companies um, uh, settle out of court is specifically so that docs like these don't, Get out into the public's hands um but uh so internal tech emails that there's like decades of these great emails that that go back and forth we've got like steve jobs and mark zuckerberg and all these other great ones but um so this acquisition came out as part of the discovery process and um, the first place i read it was this like random croatian uh like you know town newspaper that had some sort of a vested interest in knowing about photomap Um, you know, there were also some more legitimate sources that, um, I think made sure that the, the, the T's were crossed and the I's were dotted that did in fact happen, but, um, but yeah, that's, it's, it's kind of interesting how long they were able to keep it bottled up, um. You know, there's another one this summer where Google acquired Brightbytes, and it's like, well, the founder of Brightbytes changed his LinkedIn description to, like, head of product, EDU product at Google. It's like, oh, yeah, it probably got acquired. Um, <laughs> I I had not checked the PhotoMath team's LinkedIn's recently, so it's possible they did, too, but um, that's another way that this stuff often breaks out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm often on my soapbox here talking about Google. It's the largest <laughs> education company in the world. Um, The interesting thing about Photomath is it actually started, I believe, as bank software, where you know how when you're depositing a mobile check, it can read your check and then you can deposit it. And so um, Damir, the CEO, had actually sold a company that did, you know, um, visual recognition around reading your bank statements. And he was working on one for more sophisticated financials. And he just realized, wow, this could really work on my daughter's math homework. <laughs> and from there, kind of started PhotoMath. They were at a point where they were getting something like 100 million um, users, um, and, you know, annual users. They had a really foundational challenge, which was everybody wanted to use it for free and you know, where to put the paywall. And so I know they've been working very hard to build in tutoring, so that you don't just use it to get the answer, but also you can understand the three or four different ways to solve that same equation. But I think it's really clear now that this use of AI, computer vision, plus you know AI inst- you know driven instructional units that can break essentially automatically create a lesson or a unit around any um, problem was of strate- of real strategic value to somebody like Google. And I do think that it should raise big questions writ large around why is Google buying up these, you know, really, really prevalent learning tools and not disclosing it? Because meanwhile, you know, Chegg is Chegg and some of these other companies have launched similar products and they're labeled as cheating tools, right? And they face all of this like headwind around, You know, is it cheating or is it tutoring or is it instructional? And meanwhile, we've seen PhotoMath and the Google team keep a really low profile. So in one sense, this could be a really good thing for learners as PhotoMath potentially gets incorporated across the broad set of Google education tools. In another sense, this is potentially another market distortion that ed tech entrepreneurs are going to have to deal with because now the largest ed tech company in the world google um which happens to be the largest one of the largest companies in the world google now also has the largest um you know photo answer system in the world photomath and you know if you're trying to figure out how do i make a business case against something i don't believe photomath ever figured out the paywall conundrum so it's you know on top of all of this you know the full stack of google offerings uh, aside from their cloud infrastructure and chromebooks are essentially free to the education ecosystem so an interesting moment in time and something that we'll have to watch um you know per our prior conversation the rate of change in ai is accelerating so much will a photo math acquired by google have an insurmountable lead um, by virtue of its position with a major LLM AI provider lambda and VOD and so on or will will they actually not be able to keep the lead given the rate of change and experimentation that we're seeing and as you say Alex's Cambrian explosion of you know AI ed tech startups so this one is one to keep coming back to and watching
2: it's yeah it's amazing. And, I, you know, the only thing I would the only thing I can possibly add to that is like Photomath is unbelievably popular. I mean, it has 300 million downloads, has more than 200 million ratings on the Android at Google Play Store, which is ratings are usually a pretty good proxy for how popular something is. Photomath is everywhere. And it it really caught like wildfire, you know, when it when it launched, the idea that Google sort of and still a top five app. I think it's the number one math app in the world and top five education app. The fact that Google, for one thing, they have, they own the Google Play Store. They know exactly how many downloads they got. But they can sort of gently behind the scenes, like you're saying, Matt and Ben, you know, swoop up this app and say, you know, this is ours now. And we'll figure out what to do with it at some point. We'll incorporate it. Maybe we put it into Google Suite. Maybe we just put it into our own future AI plans because it, it, it's also uh, you know using artificial intelligence and it's just it's a very interesting moment and I, I know Ben you're, you're always justified you your your soapbox about Google being the, the the big behemoth in the room it just we keep hearing things that make it more and more true but last subject really fast I was not sadly at South by Southwest edu this year I wish I could have been there I had huge fomo I really wish I could have been there. It sounds like it was an amazing event. The two of you were both there in Austin, living it up, talking to everybody, networking. Tell us what South by Southwest EDU was like this year. Uh, ben, let me, let me kick it to you just for, to start that off. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how last week feels like two different weeks. There was the SVB week, and then there was the South by Southwest week. Um, so, you know, for those of you who don't know, South by Southwest, is this popular music and cultural festival, but they also have an EDU component focused on early childhood, um, K-12 and higher ed. Um, not as much corporate work learning focus there. Um, so it tends to be you know aligned with academic institutions. And first we had a great EdTech Insiders happy hour, over 200 of our best friends, including Matt, um, showed up at the, the Seven Grand Bar in Austin it really was a blast. And it was just a reminder of how strong our community is uh, coming out of COVID, coming out of uh, EdTech winter, the optimism in the room, the kind of shared problem solving, it, it, was, it was a celebratory moment. It really was great. Um, I'd say the other three big takeaways from South By, one is that most of the school districts were not present. Uh, if you have a teacher shortage... If you're having budget concerns, you do not send a delegation to South by Southwest. And they were noticeably absent in in this time. And I do think that the kind of presence of K-12 institutions and university institutions is declining at conferences overall, just because the staffing shortages and budgets have been tight. And the second is that um, there was a lot around AI use cases and I think it's still, you know, early days in terms of how people are thinking about mm-hmm. where AI, AI fits into the go it ecosystem, in part because it's changing so fast and in part because many of these big institutions aren't going to do a deal with somebody that are like, you know, it's like four dudes in a garage. Like there's a way in which you have to have a certain gravitas, a certain size and a certain stability for big players to adopt you. And so, you know, we might have a meeting, you know, happy hour out in the Bay area where everybody's really excited about what's happening. I think it's a little bit more of a cautious, like stay the course tone when you start hitting the middle of the country and they are thinking about much more, uh, the larger players. And then I would say the third big topic was really around the mental health crisis. Um, several sessions just pointing out that at all levels of our system it might be students it might be educators it might be parents it might be professors this idea that the education point of of sale is also the mental health point of sale that the idea that healthcare and learning are kind of converging as both integral to you know the, the person's outcomes in life but also the idea that we need to be more synergized in how we deliver those things, that was really salient across both the networking and the sessions. And I found myself meeting with healthcare people who found themselves at an education conference, and that was really an interesting uh, confluence. So I do think that that's actually something we're gonna see more of. So maybe as the schools and universities back out, we'll see more healthcare companies and and nonprofits and so on, thinking about, you know, let's meet our constituents where they are, which is largely in schools and universities. Um, Matt, what were some of your takeaways?
1: Yeah, I think uh just on that last note, the community schools movement that has, I think is mostly taken root in California and is starting to, to spread a little bit across the country is um something I'm following in general Um, and it's cool to see it kind of live in action at at South by, Um, you know, and I I always kind of get a kick out of looking at the sponsors for these conferences and seeing like, you know uh, what, and they they do it in this kind of (laughs) very capitalistic leveling system where like you've got the premium and then the like kind of premium and then the like a little bit premium, but more not so premium. And it just goes down the stack. So, I I do encourage folks to take a look at those because I think it shows, kind of, particularly among the ecosystem players, like where they're prioritizing their dollars across different conferences. Um, For me, I I think my takeaway was kind of um, it felt a little bit more intimate in that, you know, not everybody was there, but uh, there was a good time for like one on ones. A lot of folks trying to meet kind of individually we had the happy hours and I, I, I thought you all really kicked off the week strong uh, uh, with with your happy hour on Monday I thought that was a good way to like kick things off at the bang um, but but for me it really was a story around getting together with folks um, and you know the one thing that was a little surprising is there wasn't like a major company announcement um, so at GSV which is in April there's usually a uh, somebody makes some interesting announcement or there's kind of a cacophony of announcements uh, around it um i think the two U edx deal was around gsv um a couple of years ago but there's usually like a couple of big announcements and i didn't i don't think i saw one around south by um so it might just be folks folks are kind of waiting for mid-april but um that's something that i i try to keep an eye, eye out for
2: Yeah, really interesting. It's true. We didn't we didn't talk about any giant news that dropped last week at the conference on this on this. Uh, podcast. It, it turned out
0: that it dropped on Thursday and Friday.
2: It sure, did. <laughs> dropped on on the entire uh, the entire ecosystem. So, if you're listening to this podcast, we are putting this one out live to try to get it, or not live, but you know early to try to get it into your hands fast because the Silicon Valley stuff is moving quickly. That's why you didn't hear the theme song at the beginning. It also means that the, we're going to take the MA and funding and put it in the newsletter rather than listing it out. But there's actually a lot of good funding rounds this week, uh, it, coming out of Europe uh, especially. But it, it's been an awesome episode. I know we went a little long because we didn't edit, uh, but it's, you guys are amazing as always. Matt, I think you're like the investigative journalist of EdTech. That I That's feel great. like. You're digging through the internal emails to find the real story. It's really interesting. Woodward and Bernstein. Um, and Ben, as always, you know, amazing takes on everything. It is an amazing moment for this for this world, for the tech world and the ed tech world. Well, you know, and,
0: and Alex, on that point too, I just think it's, I, I'm feeling especially grateful for the ed tech community with everything that happened with SVB. People were standing together. They were supporting each other. And with everything going on with AI and this incredible ride we're on, uh, I think we have a lot of great people leaning in, trying to do what's best for our customers, our learners, and for the society as a whole. It's going to be a really, really interesting turning of the corner this spring into the rest of the year. I don't think we've ever experienced something like what we're about to experience in EdTech land. And I'm so glad to be processing it with the two of you.
2: Yeah, and we're going to see the Occupy Sandhill Road movement starting. There we go. <laughs> I'll
0: see you out with the the. I'll bring with the, the beer. That sign the, <laughs> and the
2: camping gear. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Thanks for you. having me. Yeah. If it happens in EdTech, it's gonna you're going to hear about it here on EdTech Insiders.